0: Good morning. It is a joy to be with you. I uh, figured you'd figure out I was not uh, one of your regular members when I didn't show up in a Ravens jersey, but fewer folks are wearing Ravens jerseys than the last time I preached when you were at the other uh, location. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know if I should feel more out of, out of uh, dress code or less, but it's a joy to be with you. Um, Pastor Joe asked me early in the week to uh, give a title, and uh, so I just randomly picked one Lord, one prayer, one church. If I were to give the sermon a title now, it would be a Master Class for Poets and Sledgers. A Master Class for Poets and Sledgers. Is the feedback okay on this? Because from where I'm standing, I'm like right at the edge of reverb. To my mouth? Way. How's that? Better, or worse? All right. I'd like to read the passage that we're dealing with today, if, if you would allow me to. And whenever you pray, do not pray like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we receive it with rejoicing. So last week I was at a a business dinner with my wife, and uh, the most talkative guy at the table told us that he had just subscribed to the Masterclass channel. Do any of you take the Masterclass channel? Apparently it's where you can watch master classes that will make you master of something. And he was trying to master both being a chef and being a, a sommelier, a word I can barely say. So he, he wanted to cook well and to, to know a lot about wine. And it got me to thinking, maybe that's where we are today in the Sermon on the Mount, because what is the Sermon on the Mount if not a master class by Jesus, our Lord and Master, in discipleship? Well, that's a rhetorical question, but given the series that you're in the midst of, the right answer would be, well, it's also a master class in the new way to be yeah, a masterclass in the new way to be human. So that's what we're here for today. But there's an important difference between this masterclass that Jesus is offering and the, the masterclass channel that could teach you to be a chef or a sommelier or I suppose a, a, a carpenter. Because this masterclass is not about creating independence. This masterclass is is about rooting us more deeply in the master. Like on the master channel, if you watch enough uh, uh, episodes about how to be a chef, then you become a chef and you can turn the channel off and just do your own thing, right? But Jesus recognizes that the new way to be human will always depend on him. And So today we're in the center of our course, the, the very middle episode, right? In the middle chapter, in the middle of the middle chapter, And so perhaps today we're at the most central lesson in Jesus Masterclass, the one that's most important or most useful. And I'm going to check that out uh, empirically. Uh, So we'll compare the, the middle to the beginning and the end. So what's the first thing in the sermon? Yes, somebody said it earlier, but nobody's willing to say it now. I am a teacher, I give pop quizzes. So the first thing is the Beatitudes, right? And how do they go? We know they start blessed are, but what comes after that? Oh, a list of things. Blessed are the poor in spirit. How many of you say these Beatitudes every day? Do you say them when you get up in the morning? Do you say them when you go to bed at night? Probably not. What's the last lesson in Jesus' masterclass? Did anybody read ahead? Where does this thing end? Somebody's quickly reading now. It ends with the parable of the wise and the foolish builders, right? The the wise builder builds a house on rock, and the foolish builder builds a house on sand. Do you you get up every morning and and say, sing the song to yourself? How does that go? The wise man built his house upon the rock. Um, Now, you probably don't. But... Maybe, just maybe, you say this prayer that we just read in the middle lesson frequently. Do any of you say it every day? Yeah, one or two. In other Christian traditions, there are folks that say it when they get up in the morning, say it when they go to bed at night. In the early church, uh, Christians adopted a practice of saying this At the same times of the day and as frequently as Jews would say the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6, a Jew would remind him or herself of their covenant faith in God by saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, the Lord alone. Christians would say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's a prayer that is so simple that even a child can master it, yet a prayer that is so full and deep and rich that you could spend a lifetime being mastered by it. A lifetime letting the master of the prayer master your heart through the words of the prayer. So let's, let's look at something that happened in the news this week a big 30th anniversary was celebrated. Did anybody hear the news stories about the, the fact that about 30 years ago, Thursday or Friday, the Berlin Wall came down. For those of us who are old enough to have lived through Cold War uh, uh, nuclear fallout drills, now, now you've got active shooter training uh, and people are worried about what that will do to the psyche of children. Uh, when I was in grade school, Uh, We practiced what to do when nuclear missiles were aimed at America. Um, And the Berlin Wall stood as the visible symbol of the Cold War. And when it came down in 1989, it was a visible sign of the end of the Cold War. And there are lots of stories about the, the factors that caused this to finally come down. The wall that divided East Berlin from West Berlin, free Uh, West Berlin from communist East Berlin. Lots of stories of why it came down, but I want to highlight two things in those stories. The first is poetry. The changes that led to the tearing down of the Berlin Wall were, according to Lech Walesa, the, the leader of Poland, initiated by the truth of poetry and Artists uh, doing poetry together and other forms of of fiction and and written written literature in Poland. But let's stick with poetry. Think about it. On one side, you've got a massive concrete wall topped with barbed wire, lined with guard towers and searchlights and machine guns, big and massive. And over here, you've got poets, right? Right? Men and women armed with words, nothing but words, words capable of seeing and speaking the truth. Perhaps that image might remind you of Joshua and the children of Israel, right? Marching around for seven days around the mighty walls of Jericho, armed with nothing but uh, their faith, some trumpets, and obedience. More to the point, maybe that image should remind you of our master teacher Jesus and the poetry of this sermon itself. The truth that it is speaking against the forces of sin and of evil. So that's one image, poets. And to think of this prayer as, as it were, a poem of truth. The other image is that when the walls finally came down uh, at the beginning, they weren't knocked down by bulldozers and massive cranes. They were knocked down by ordinary people with sledgehammers. So think about it. The walls are 12 feet high, right? And they're almost a foot thick and they are 27 miles long. And People came up with sledgehammers and stood in front of a 12-foot-high, foot-thick, 27-mile-wide wall and said, I'm going to knock this thing down. Now, I do like to swing a sledgehammer. When I was 17, I went to Six Flags uh, over Texas, and they had one of those things where you, you, you swing the hammer, and if, if you swing it hard enough, it goes up and it dings the bell. And you got three swings for a quarter, and I spent $10.00. And I dinged the bell once! It was awesome! They gave me a little, a little silver medallion that said Six Flags Over Texas. I love to swing a sledgehammer. Um, but I think if I stood in front of a 27-mile-wide, 12-foot-high, foot-thick concrete wall with just a sledgehammer, I'd be more likely to start crying than swinging. But let's back the camera up and notice that I'm not the only person there with a sledgehammer because... The wall didn't come down with one isolated individual and a sledgehammer, but it was a crowd, a community, and they weren't crying, and they they weren't even shouting angrily, they were laughing and singing and swinging, sledging. So what does poetry and sledging have to do with prayer, specifically with this prayer? Well, Karl Barth, great theologian, once said that to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. When you fold your hands to pray, Barth is saying, that's the beginning of a revolt against the disorder of the world. So this prayer is our poem, Telling It True in a World of Lies. And this prayer is our sledgehammer beating down every barrier between us and the true freedom, the beautiful humanity, the glorious kingdom that God wants to bring. So let's look at the one Lord's one prayer for his one church and let's look at it in a couple of ways. The first way we're going to look at it is we're going to drill into the first two words of the prayer. Then we're going to step back and we're going to focus on the two main parts of the prayer. So, uh, teaching for 11 years in an evangelical seminary in Chicago, North Park, I got pretty used to all prayers beginning with four words. Father God, we just. And then that would be repeated uh, several times more in the prayer. And it sometimes made me wonder if people realized that just was, was supposed to mean less, not more. Uh, It was a way of intentionally stepping on the brakes, not the accelerator. But more to the point, when we look at what Jesus said leading into the prayer today, his admonition, admonition is when you're praying, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Don't heap words upon words. Jesus is saying, get started, get going, be done. It's a brief prayer, less than 80 words. And it does all the work that needs doing, according to Jesus. So let's look at those first two words. And what are they? For us, it's our Father. But in Greek and the Aramaic that Jesus probably originally spoke, in certain other translations, they actually come in the other order. So Father is the first word. And our, or of us, Father of us, is the second word. Uh, some of you may have even heard that uh, older Catholics would sometimes call this prayer the Pater Noster, uh, because they originally memorized it in Latin, and in Latin, Father first, and then our second. So I think that's an important order, because God does actually come first in our praying and in our discipleship, in the new humanity that Jesus is offering us. The important thing is to get God first and us second. If prayer is about becoming the new true humanity, it starts with the recognition that God is God and we're not. God is God. I'm not. God first, us second. So the first word here, though, isn't God, is it? But it's actually the name we've been given to address God. It's Father. So... Two words, uh, Father first our second. If we look at Father, we can see that Father is a way of reaching up to God. Um, You can can take different postures when you pray. Maybe you fold your hands. Uh, Sometimes people pray in in an early uh, cross-shaped position called the Oran's position. Uh, When Joe was ordained, the last time I was in this sanctuary... Uh, I remember hands were placed upon him at that ordination. Uh, But I would say that fundamentally these two words, Father and Our, give us two gestures. Father is reaching up and Our is reaching out. Father is reaching up, Our is reaching out. So let's start with Father. Prayer begins by reaching up to the source of all goodness and help. To the Creator of heaven and earth, Father names the God who fills all things, who gives every good and every perfect gift. So I say that prayer is reaching up because traditionally we've thought of heaven as up, right? In fact, heaven can be a word for the sky. Look to the heavens and uh, glory in God. And it does say, our Father in heaven. But heaven is tricky. For convenience, we do speak of heaven as being up, but get in a rocket and go up and up and up. You could get to the moon. You could get to Mars. Um, You know, if you could live long enough, you could get to another, uh, another galaxy. But you would never finally arrive at heaven, no matter how far up you went, right? Heaven isn't a going up kind of place. Heaven isn't a going up kind of place. It's a reaching up reality. Heaven is about piety and praise. Heaven is where seraphim sing, holy, holy, holy. Heaven is where the heavenly host shouts, Hosanna, glory and honor and wisdom and power be unto the Lamb. Heaven is where God's name is perfectly praised. where God's will is perfectly done and where God's rule is perfectly realized. Notice those are the next three lines in the prayer itself. Hallowed be thy name. Heaven is where God's name is perfectly praised. Thy will be done. Heaven is where God's will is already perfectly done. Thy kingdom come. Heaven is where God's kingdom is already perfectly realized and manifested. We're asking for all those things to come our way. So God isn't up, but rather right here. And so we say prayer to God the Father is reaching up because it's a symbol that our desires, our longing for God, our hope is for more of God, for a fullness that we call God's kingdom. So I say heaven is reaching up as a metaphor, but heaven is really reaching out for God, reaching toward God, right? Reaching toward God. The good news is God hasn't been standing around waiting for us to reach for God. In fact, God reached out to us first. We can reach out, we can reach up to God the Father because God has already reached down to us. Remember when Jesus went to be baptized by his cousin John at the Jordan River? And, and after they have a little, you know, uh, cousinly spat at the, the bank about whether this will or won't happen, he is baptized, the heavens open, and what does the voice say? We, we see the Spirit descend on Jesus in the form of a dove, and the voice of God the Father says, This is my Son, the Beloved. We can reach up to God the Father because the Father has already given Jesus the Holy Spirit. The Father has already given Jesus the promise of unending love. And Jesus is sharing that Spirit and those promises with us in giving us this prayer. When Jesus gives us this prayer and says, pray like this. He's he's giving us a share in His Holy Spirit and a share in His beloved relationship with the Father. So calling God Father is a gift that Jesus is giving us so that we can share in His beloved relation and have a portion in His inheritance. We can reach up to God because we've already been reached in Jesus. So the second word after the word Father is our. 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 Prayer continues not just by reaching up to God, by calling God Father, but by reaching out to the world with the word our. Our names who we are. I use the title church in the original title of the sermon, but our means church and more. Um, many people who comment on the, the sermon. Already beginning in in the year in the 300s and all the way till a a brand new book I was reading this week, point out that when you go alone into your room and pray this prayer all by yourself, you still say, Our Father, not My Father, even if you're the only person there. And and the the commentators point out that if, if you don't do it that way, you should. There's a reason that Jesus doesn't want us to say, My Father in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. That Jesus doesn't want us to use singular pronouns. There's a reason. Our is about the full sweep and scope of the gospel. It's a reminder that God, in God's saving love, invites everyone. God has invited all to be adopted as brothers and sisters of Jesus so that we can call God Father. Uh, God has invited all to come in and become part of God's church. So the hour in this prayer is part of the same story that starts in Genesis 2. Remember God makes an earth creature in Genesis 2, uh, a creature of dust or mud and breathes life into it. And God discovers that it's not good for this earthling to be alone. And, and uh God eventually creates two from one, and they form a community. This prayer, our Father, is Jesus teaching us that through Christ, we are brought into a holy embrace, a saving embrace, that gives us not only God, but one another, The hour is a celebration that we have been given to one another by being given membership in Christ. But again, we reach out for this community because God has already reached in to our world and our humanity, our brokenness, and our alienation. We're able to say our because God came to us when we were all alone and brought us back together. Remember how the the story begins in Matthew? It starts with all the begats. Uh, If you think the Beatitudes are hard to remember, how about three fourteens of begats, right? Uh, Abraham begat Isaac and Isaac begat Jacob. Uh, But then it goes on and says that that story of God beginning to overcome our alienation comes to its fullness in the birth to Mary the Virgin of the child that that Joseph is to give a name. Joseph has a dream and he's told to give the name Jesus for he'll save his people from their their sins. But there's another name that is used to identify. The child that will be born, Joseph is told, will be called Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. Emmanuel means God with us And if we're to use Emmanuel's words, this Emmanuel who on uh, the mountain is, is giving us a master class in prayer, if we are to use his words and follow his pattern, then we will pray using plural pronouns we and us and our because in doing that, we are naming the fact that we stand in and belong to the very one who is God with us. Saying our Father is a way of participating in Emmanuel, God with us. So our Father doesn't rhyme, but it's still poetry. It names the truth about God's love reaching down and reaching in and making us beloved, making us an us. Our Father... Now, the 70 words that come after our Father don't weigh anything at all. They're certainly not as heavy as a sledgehammer. But those simple words are sledges that hammer against the disorder of our world. So, I think they do that in two ways. If you step back, there's Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then there's Give us daily bread, forgive us our sins, lead us not into temptation into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That first set about thy will, thy kingdom, thy name, that's a part of the prayer where we're saying, be God for us. Be God for us. And that second part, give us daily bread and all the rest, is a place where we're saying, be good to us. This prayer is a be God for us and a be good to us prayer. (coughs) Now, think about being God for us. Does God need to be encouraged to be God? Can't God just sort of do that without even trying? I'm not even breaking a sweat, and I'm, I'm God all the time. It's easy. It comes naturally. And we're not wrong to think that. But remember how often in our human story we have tried to, to be our own God's. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve decided to assert their own will rather than follow God's will. Not long after that, Cain tried to force the kingdom with his own sacrifice. Not long after that, at a place that we learned to call Babel, a community tried to make a hallowed name for themselves rather than hallowing God's name. If you read Genesis 1-11, through you see that Our own will, our own name, and and bringing the kingdom have been efforts we've tried to do on our own rather than let God be God and do them for us. So we bought into the lie that happiness is doing our own thing or freedom is thinking for ourselves or that the good life can be purchased uh, on Amazon if you've got a Prime membership or forced with uh, the right kind of power. So it's no wonder Jesus says pray like this. He knows that we want to be lords over ourselves, and so we need to learn to pray, be God for us. Um, So that's the first half of the prayer, and it opens into the second half, be good to us. Now wouldn't it seem that at this point we would get to start saying me and my? Be good to me, Lord. You know, Uh, uh, there, a writer whose name just escaped me says, you know, one of the most basic prayers is help. Help, help me, help me, help me. And it would seem like we ought to, after starting with our father, we have made that big theological declaration, shouldn't we now get to just ask for what I need? Or, or me and my wife and our kids? We four, no more. Don't we get to close the circle in at this point? Apparently not. Because it turns out, If we want daily bread, so do other people. If we need forgiveness, so do other people. If we want to be protected and delivered, other people need that as well. So this second half of the prayer is a continual reminder that that our love and care needs to look out at the world that Jesus sees, the world that Jesus died for. Notice another thing that's cool about this second half of the prayer. It moves us through time. It has all three tenses in it. The past, the present, the future. The first of the three positions is give us today our daily bread. Right now. But then we go on from the present into the past and say, forgive us our sins as we have forgiven. It's past hurts that, that may be dominating or hindering us in the present. We're asking to be forgiven about that. And then we look from the past to the future when we say, lead us not into temptation, looking to the future, but if something comes our way, deliver us from the evil that would come. So when we ask God to be good to us, we're asking for a grace that will feed us now and that will forgive our past and that will free our future. And we ask it because we can trust that God has already done that very thing in Jesus' own life. Taking care of Jesus in the past and the present and the future. The other thing about this part of the prayer is that the word that's most commonly used there is the plural pronoun. Eight times we have we and us and our. That ought to to call our attention to just how important it is for us as a church to include the people that Jesus included. Us. And include the overlooked. We. And include the disparaged. Our. And include the harassed. Us. And include the disinherited or the disadvantaged. Us. Jesus requires us even to include our enemies in that us. That's a hard teaching. I'm glad you didn't give me that one. And yet it's here. It's here right in the prayer. So when we pray, give us our daily bread, we're praying that every hungry person on the planet will be fed. When we pray, forgive us our trespasses, we're asking God in Christ to forgive the whole world, even our enemies. For surely in doing that, our actions will then need to match and we'll need to help feed the hungry and we'll need to find ways to forgive ourselves and to protect. So having said all that, I, I have to say it's, it's hard for me to practice what I'm preaching. I find forgiveness to be a challenge. Uh, I mean, that really hurt, right? I once asked... Uh, my daughter to forgive me when she was about five because I had yelled at her when I shouldn't have. I'd really lost my patience. And, and so I made a sincere apology and I said, Monica, do you forgive me? And she said, well, a little. <laughs> Can you really forgive somebody a little? I don't think so. It's either you do or you don't. And sometimes I really struggle. But you know... If I struggle to practice what I preach, the original preacher of this Sermon on the Mount did not. He is, in fact, the master teacher, the master preacher, and Jesus is the one who made God's name holy on earth as in heaven. Jesus brought the kingdom from heaven down to earth. Jesus did the Father's will even when He had to struggle with it in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus shared his bread with the hungry and forgave sinners and delivered us all from evil on the cross. The poet was murdered, but he swung his sledgehammer and the wall came down. So, Jesus gives us a share in his prayer so we can reach up to God and reach out to the world saying, be God for us, be good to us, And the prayer gets answered. So this morning I want to call you, my brothers and sisters, fellow sledgers, right? Fellow sledgers. Because this prayer is our uprising against the disorder of the world. Perhaps first the disorder in our own hearts, and then more widely the disorder in the world around us. This be God for us is a pounding against our own idolatries. And it frees us to serve God and to live in God's peace and love. And then we pray, be good to us so that we can beat down anxiety about what we want in the present. Our fear about the future, our despair over our past sins. This prayer helps us to beat those fears and anxieties down. But you're not just sledgers, you're also poets. Because this prayer recites the true tale of Jesus Christ, the Lord who practiced what He preached, so that we can be true and faithful. It's a true story about the one who is the truth. And you know, poets actually have to speak their poetry aloud from time to time. Sledgers have to actually pick up the sledge and swing it from time to time. So I invite you to join with me as we close to speak together this poem that Jesus gave us and we'll use not the translation in Matthew but the more traditional version that that Christians have commonly prayed saying and praying together Our Father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven